open up your Bibles to John chapter 1 this morning. And while you're doing that, I just want to give you a kind of heads up that in January we're going to start off the year with a little three-week series just on on Scripture and Bible reading and understanding the Bible and all of that. And January 1 is actually a great time. Fortunately, as a Christian, we don't have to wait for New Year's Day, right, to start over something. We don't have to wait for that to have a new creation go on in our lives. We talked last week, in fact, that God's mercies are new every morning. But it still is a great time of the year to evaluate and to look at things. And I would encourage you, I don't know if you're doing this right now, but some of you are meal planners, so you already know what you're eating you know, not Christmas Day, because that's, that's unfair, but uh, next Tuesday, for instance, you already know, because you're a meal planner. That's just how things go in your household. Um, others of you don't have a clue what you're eating until two minutes before a fork goes in your mouth, right? Because that's just how you roll. But how about spiritually? Let me, just, let me just put this out to you. I would challenge you and invite you and encourage you to be a meal planner for 2012. How are you going to ingest the Scripture? How are you going to grow this next year at digesting, at soaking in God's Word? And there's no way that you are going to turn in. The Ironman triathlon was on TV the other day. There's nothing better than eating chips on the couch watching the Ironman triathlon and just watching these athletes suffer. But it was actually really beautifully shot and really beautifully narrated. And you don't turn into an Ironman triathlete just, just hoping it happens, right? Or just, or just you know, praying more. Uh, there's a plan to it. And God has set it up such that the athlete metaphor is actually a biblical one, right? And we're to, we're to buffet our bodies, we're to discipline our bodies as well as our spiritual life. So my challenge to you and my invitation to you is take some time right now so that January 1 rolls around. You've already thought about it. You've already researched it. There are some amazing uh, tools online that will help keep you on track. Some of you have smartphones that can every single day let you know right where you're doing. If you're trying to read through the whole Bible in one year, a great recommendation. That's a big jump for some of you. Um, but that will keep you on track. You'll know right where you are. You'll know right what to read um, on any given day. So let me just say to you, begin right now prepping for that. Maybe as a family, you're going to choose to read through the New Testament this year. That will take a plan. That will take you carving out and saying, five days a week, we're going to have this, and here's how it's going to go down. So just an invitation to kind of put that out to you. Um, Secondly... um, Some of you are traveling for Christmas, and uh, that's always fun and invites all kinds of fun stories to be told, Uh, some enjoyable, some not so much. Um, If you happen to be going to Pakistan for Christmas, would you um, just raise your hand? Anyone? Oh, we have some. Wow. Wow, what a shock. Um, This popular tourist destination, uh, especially at Christmas, um, they're just going to be fighting huge crowds. I know it. no, the Adam family are heading out this week, I believe, to, to Pakistan, and I just want to um, I just want to call their family out. And I want to pray pray for them as well. Um, but uh, just to give you kind of a vision for this, um, there's a sense where you can take your vacations and um, and just infuse meaning into it and infuse purpose into it. And um, I believe, I haven't even talked to Sharon person about this, but I've caught wind that a part of why they're going is to visit missionary friends. They're a very mission-minded family, but also to bring Christmas gifts to missionaries on the field. Um, as, uh, as we have some people in this room, in fact, I know uh, being on the field and receiving a personal visit and a personal uh, delivery system of Christmas gifts at Christmas time is just amazingly powerful. I'm inspired by that. We as a church body are behind you in that. 
Um, and so I want to do this. I want to just have a few of you who are close by. Ben, would you pray? But a few of you just lay hands on the two representative Adam crew. Everybody else is not feeling good. They're all sick. We know part of the prayer request right there. Um, so uh, let's just let's just uh, join hearts. And uh, Ben and Rhonda, would you both just pray uh, nice and loud for us all to hear? Can't wait to hear about that. That's uh, good times. Um, all right, I start this morning with this question. Uh, what is it that you like best about the season? Now, sometimes I ask for feedback and we have a conversation up here, but I just want you to think about that for a second. And if you were forced to write it down, what would that be? Now, here's what may be going on when a question like that is put out, especially inside of a church building on a Sunday morning during a worship service. It's a little bit like the question from um, not that many years ago, uh, maybe a decade ago. I pay attention to these things because I'm a former bagger. But um, the whole question of paper or plastic, right? And there was this dilemma that went on inside of you when you were asked that question, and you're trying to remember, like, you know, which is the right answer? Like, you know, because we've, we've heard conflicting, you know, I don't want to kill dolphins on the one hand, but, but the trees, I mean, you've got to love the trees. Um, and so, you, you, you know, there was a commercial that actually grabbed hold of this, and it spun through a guy's mind as he's asked that panicky question. I think, it's, I think it's that way for us a little bit because it's a little bit of a loaded question because what we know the right answer should be is Jesus, right? I mean, it's always the right answer in church, right? Um, uh, kids learn this. That, that's from the very beginning. But, but here's the thing. Um, in, in answering this question, um, maybe, maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's more than just a quick snap answer of Jesus. If you ask kids this, they will give you unfiltered response normally. And the younger they are, usually the more unfiltered it will be. Most kids would answer presence, right? I mean, they don't, they don't try to spin it. They don't try to filter it to think of what you'll think about it. They're like presence. And the more the better. And usually it will be followed with some level of detail as they describe what they're hoping for or what they're wishing for at Christmas time. This really is a season of worship, and not just for Christians or people who are religious. It is a season of worship. And we talk often in this building that um, we are made as people to be unceasing worshipers, and you don't have to believe the Bible or understand a biblical worldview to just pick up on that. And some of you are very observant, and as you go around through uh, the December holidays, what you see is that it, it heightens it. It kind, of, it kind of brings it into relief with other things, that, wow, we really are a people of of worship. And I would venture to say this, that what we anticipate, what we hope for, what excites us, what quickens our heart, and maybe even what we talk about the most, what dominates our mind, that's what we really worship. That's what's really most important. This is illustrated with my kindergartner, five-year-old Cassie and I are walking to school this week. And two days prior to a field trip that she had, we're walking along and we're discussing my older daughter's field trip that was the next day. Cassie's was in two days. And in two days, Cassie was going to go see a play. And what came out of Cassie's mouth was this. We were walking to school and she said this. I said, are you excited about your field trip? And she says, I get to ride on a real school bus. I'm like, cool. Thumbs up. Diesel fumes. Nothing better. Um, the day before... Uh, the day before the, the field trip, we're walking along and we're discussing uh, field trips and this and that. And I said, wow, Cassie, you get to get dressed up and you get to go to a real play tomorrow. That sounds really, really fun, don't you think? And here's what she said. Dad, 
Do you know that you don't have to wear seat belts on a school bus? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. Thank you. Day of the play. We're walking to school. Cassie's dressed up. We're cruising along. And driving down the street that we walk to school comes, you guessed it, a school bus. What does Cassie do? Shotgun. She calls shotgun for the school bus. Now, two things. One is she has older brothers, so she sees this played out. Her older sister corrects her saying, I don't think you can call shotgun at the school bus. Day of the play, we get home. And um, I said, I said, Cassie, how was the play? What am I anticipating? What do I know she's going to talk about? Here's what she says. She goes, Dad, I get to ride on a school bus two more times this year. There's two more field trips coming. <laughs> now, we can, we can surmise from this five-year-old, what was she most excited about? The school bus. Adults are only slightly more sophisticated. Okay? Now here's what we do. We tend to put on airs, don't we? Sometimes what we do, even as Christians, we will talk about the right things, we will say the right things, when if we were genuine and in our, in our just most open moments with our closest friends, what comes out of our mouth most, what we're thinking about most, what we put our money toward most, is really what we're most excited about. Cassie had no idea that what you're supposed to do on this field trip is enjoy the play and enjoy the dress up and all that. It just came out of her heart. Here is what I'm excited about. And so what I want to do in these next couple of weeks is um, I want us to think about uh, as, we, as we live through um, another December, um, I want to call attention to some things. We have gifts and we have parties and, shoppings and shopping and budgets uh, and decorations and all kinds of things. And as a Christian, sometimes we can look back in January and go, how on earth did that get top billing? How on earth did that season of wonder and worship turned into me fretting about what was going to go on and how you know, that person's feelings were going to be hurt or lifted up by this family gathering that I was you know, worried about the whole time. What I want to do is prep us and just, I'm right there with you in this. I, I just want to call our attention to and, and let, um, and let our, our attention land on some things. The word advent um, is a Latin word and it means arrival or coming. And the season of Advent, some of you were steeped in this growing up, um, but it really is a season where we are looking back to the first Advent. That's the celebration of Christ coming uh, in human form and walking amongst us. But it's also a season of looking ahead to the second Advent. And it's a really beautiful picture. We actually do this quite often in communion here, is that we are called to look back and to remember and to rejoice and to celebrate. But communion also says this, that every time that we eat and drink it, we proclaim the Lord's death until He returns. So there's a past element and there's a future element. And the same is true with this season. And so what we're going to do is take this week and look back. And first, uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John, not 1 John, gives us a great word that, that, that enters into Christianity, and it's one of the greatest words we have. It's one of the greatest gifts and ideas that we have, and that is the incarnation. It literally means in the flesh, God coming and dwelling amongst us in the flesh. I'm going to read from John chapter 1 right now, and it says this. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. 
God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 6, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. That is um, one of the most revered passages of Scripture, and it is loaded with theology and some very giant ideas. But such a great passage to focus on and think about. We're calling this little two-week series A Christmas Adventure. And like any adventure, uh, the circumstances that, that surround this season, as we look back on thinking about Christ coming to the earth, it just really has all these elements that we would expect from a great adventure story today. There's a cliffhanger element to it. There's dark peril. All hope is lost. And an unlikely hero, we just sang of the unlikeliest of heroes coming and saving the day, somewhat out of left field, unexpected to be sure. How is it that you and I can go through this season sometimes as Christians and be disconnected even from the story, even from our story? as Christians, and we know it, we know the details of it, we can sing about it. But maybe worse yet, worse than just being disconnected from the story, is being disconnected from the adventure that it is to be living this story, to be in this story, to be a part of the ongoing tale that God is weaving. Advent is marked by a spirit of expectation, of anticipation, preparation, and longing. It'll be interesting to talk with the Adams and just hear what is Christmas like in Pakistan. I've never been there. I've never been there for Christmas. What is it like? I really enjoyed uh, over Thanksgiving weekend getting to be in Ethiopia and talking with some Christians and just talking a little bit about Christmas and seeing we have it. We bought a little Christmas nativity scene from Ethiopia and just realizing that there are some nuances, but wow, it's the same. Na- nativity scene that, that we would have, that I see in, my, in front yards around, around uh, places here. All around the world, this season is marked by this. There's a yearning for deliverance from the evils of the world. This idea of longing and anticipation is as old as Israelites who are enslaved to the people of Egypt and longing to be freed from their bitter oppression. It's the cry of those who've experienced the tyranny of injustice in a world that is still under the curse of sin. And lest you forget, we are really the rich ones in this world. We're the ones who, um, you know, who would be viewed by much of the world. And this is, I have a book on my desk called Why the Rest Hate the West. And there's a certain sense that, that, 
that we look like and feel like those who are oppressing those who are around the world are the have-nots. We sing, Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And that, that sense of crying, that sense of longing, that sense of prayer and hope and expectation still rings true in our hearts today. This first Advent is remembering and rejoicing that He came. I don't know about you, but I always welcome good news. Don't you welcome good news? When someone comes and says, I've got news for you, sometimes they do this one. I've got good news and I've got bad news. How many of you want the good news first? Let me just see a raise of hands. Okay? How many, so the rest of you, the rest of you, put your hand up if you want the good news second. Okay, yeah, we can't have non-voters. You have to participate. So, um, so good news though, if someone comes and says, I've got good news and good news, you're overjoyed. You can't wait for that. We love to hear good news. But good news, or any news, has to be put into a context for us to grab hold of it and understand it and, and realize, okay, what's being said to me and how good is it really? And the same is true of the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is sometimes used in scripture and in dialogue to say, this is the gospel, this is the hope, this is the good news as it relates to Jesus Christ, right? And that's kind of important in our day and age. We have a, a society that has there's a lot of gospels. The Bible speaks of false gospels. The Bible says if I if I speak of something that's different than this, basically slap me upside the head. It's it's in the Hebrew and Greek. You have to look for it, but it's there. But the gospel of Jesus Christ takes the good news and says this is relating to the person Jesus Christ who came. And um, and that's what we want to look at. There's controversy surrounding Jesus Christ, and it was there from the very beginning. Jesus asked this question at one point. He says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, in a way, give him kind of the politically correct answer. What they say is they say, uh, well, some say Moses, some say Elijah, some say the prophet. They kind of give these things. What they leave out, though, is um, we have recorded that that he's been called a devil. Um, I'm sure that they caught wind of and heard him being called much worse, but they kind of streamline it into, into the more pleasant of, of words. It's no different today that there's still controversy surrounding the person of Jesus Christ. And when you bring up the gospel of Jesus Christ and begin to talk about Jesus of Nazareth, what it will do is it will, it will begin to stir up into people's minds um, all kinds of different ideas. Now, I don't have poll numbers specifically, but I read them this week. I just can't remember them. But a vast majority of people believe that Jesus Christ was a real person, really lived, really walked the earth, and there was something special about him. A vast majority. I think it's in the 86th percentile. The difference is, though, what you do with it at that point, right? He came, he lived, he was, in fact, a historical person, and there was something that definitely surrounded him. That's a little bit hard to deny in the fact that worldwide, this month, people will reenact his birth. And John Lennon, of course, this is called out to mind all kinds of times, but, um, but pe- very few people will reenact and celebrate John Lennon's birth. And the Beatles were kind of a big deal in pop culture. Of course, he made a very famous comparison at that point, too. But like God's people of old, many um, today pray for and expect deliverance only to be underwhelmed by the surrounding circumstances. And the way that God answers their prayer seems to throw them for a bit of a loop. 
Now, to ensure that this story, this idea of a manger and all the, the miracles surrounding the birth of Christ and the coming of Christ, to ensure that it doesn't get marginalized and just talked about at Christmas time and dusted off as we pull out little figurines and set them up on our shelves and then take them and put them back again for 11 months out of the year, I want to do some things this morning that I hope will be uh, helpful to you. If you are a non-believer or you are unsure this morning of the events surrounding the birth of Christ, I want to just say congratulations to you. If you're a non-believer and you're unsure, I just want to say to you congratulations. I would say congratulations because of this. Um, I have many people in my life, I hope you do too, that are, um, that are skeptical about the events of Christ. They're skeptical about the gospel. They're skeptical about what it means to be a Christian and walk in holiness and all these kinds of ideas and topics that, um, that I literally base my life on. And I hope, I hope that you have people in your life like that because sometimes Christians contend toward this. They get saved. They have their eyes open to the good news of Jesus Christ. Their life gets transformed. And somehow it sort of begins to um, close in around them that they no longer have people in their lives who don't know Christ. And what that does, what that does is that isolates them from the very purpose that they are created. Now, some of you are, are in deep dialogue with people. Some of you are about to have some holiday, Christmas, New Year's meals with people who are deeply skeptical. Here's a thought I want to put into your mind. I, I would say this. Instead of being worried about that, bummed about that, or frustrated by that, which sometimes a skeptic to a Christian can be, I would say this. Look at Paul. Paul was a skeptic. Paul was one who was running after Paul's goodwill and it, his life was under the authority of Paul. Saul at the time. When God gets a hold of a person like that, look at what Paul did for the kingdom of God. When a person like that is shown the facts and a spiritual re rebirth happens and there's a new creation going on inside of a person like that, they are the ones who, who will stay to the death because they've become convinced of that. There are some people that I've seen go through my life and they very quickly and very easily and frankly very emotionally make a decision for Christ. Sometimes those people concern me the most because six years from now they're going to run into some trouble. Someone's going to come along and be preaching a false gospel and they're going to very easily just kind of blow over into that camp. So this morning, I think we have uh, potentially some skeptics in here. I think we have some people who say, man, I, I want to believe that. I've been trained to believe that. I've been raised to believe that. But I want to begin to, to show you some things. And in a very short period of time that we have this morning, I just want to, um, to ask, have you ever been presented with, with the facts supporting Christianity? But the follow-up question would be this. Have you ever had your heart open? Have you ever just openly said, I'm going to set aside my presuppositions. We all have them. I presuppose there's no God. Makes it awfully hard to penetrate that with, with a different worldview, right? So I would ask this. Would you just set those aside for a moment um, as, as we begin to look at some things in the Scriptures? First of all, just a quick crash 
course on this. The uh, the Old Testament uh, is is really a book that for much of the time is pointing ahead to a Savior who would rescue and restore and reign forever. And it talked about a Messiah. And much of the Old Testament is about that. The New Testament, the, 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 the back one-third of your Bible or so, repeatedly quotes and adds commentary to what went on in the Old Testament. So what you will find often in Scripture, we're going to look at just a couple of these, but what you will find is someone saying something and quoting from the Old Testament. Most of your Bibles, and if you're reading online, have a little tiny number there. That little number is referencing oftentimes a quote to say this is where this is quoting from. And those who would be there would have caught that that was a quote from the Old Testament. Jesus said plainly that He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scriptures. That they're all speaking about Him. Now this is post-resurrection. Jesus is walking along. He joins up with two people who are on a journey. Do you remember this story? It's called the road to Emmaus, and that's where they're headed. And in Luke 24, we get it recorded for us. Verse 25 says this, And he, being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the things the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. Some of you skeptics, some of your skeptic friends and family will say this. I believe Jesus was from God in some way, shape, or form. I can't deny the words He said. I trust and follow Him, but I don't buy into the rest of it. Have you heard that before? I hear that often, actually. Jesus elevated and, and this kind of a passage says this, that Jesus lived and existed in a context such that as He's saying these words, these are words of Jesus, He is actually adding commentary to the Old Testament. He's lending authority to the Old Testament. And that's a powerful picture because of what I'm about to read to you. Now God promised a sign would accompany his messenger. He's done this over and over. And what was the sign? And here it is. It's actually a multitude of signs. But it's prophecies fulfilled. I don't know if you're going to carry around a list like I'm about to read to you um, in your back pocket or if you choose to memorize these or something. But an interesting exercise would be this. To talk to a skeptic and just say this. I'm about to read for you um, some words, and I want you to tell me who I'm reading about. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and do that right now, and um, and you can just listen. Uh, I'm not even going to read the scripture reference. I'm just going to read. Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and His anointed one. Even my friend, in whom I trusted, one who ate bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages 
30 pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. The magnificent price I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. They pierced my hands and my feet. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar drink. I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. He submitted himself to death. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. Each Passover lamb must be eaten in one house. You may not break any of its bones. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. They will look at me whom they pierced. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and not spoken deceitfully. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let me ask you a question. Of whom was I just reading about? That was weak. Thank you. I can't speak for other cultures, but especially as an American, if you were to just read off that list of writings and ask a person, and they weren't there to battle you at every point, and you were to ask them who you were just reading about, their answer would most assuredly be Jesus. And if you followed up to say, are you certain that is speaking of Jesus, they would most assuredly say, yeah, I'm, sur I'm sure of it. Here's the point of reading through that. Everything that I just read was from the Old Testament, written at least 400 years before the birth of Christ. Now, there's no agnostic, there's no scholar, there's no atheist that would deny the dating of those writings. What I just read was also translated in Alexandria 150 years before the birth of Christ. The point is this, hidden in plain sight, right there in our scriptures that we hold are signs and wonders pointing to a miraculous Messiah. 
the specific predictive prophecies that we have in our scripture are found in no other religious writing in the world. There are well over 2,000 prophecies in scripture, most of which have already been fulfilled. They're so specific in nature that as you read them, in a sense, they kind of burn bridges behind them. If they are wrong, what they do is they leave no room for a person to, to deny what was written. And so what happens is this. You have prophecy being fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, a skeptic is going to do this. A skeptic on any front, and by the way, it takes a lot of faith to believe almost any worldview that you have. Here's why. We have about this much knowledge of our universe. We just do. The more wealthy and more technical and um, expansive and expensive our tools become to discover, our knowledge almost tends to shrink because we see the size of what we're dealing with. The skeptic, though, who's looking at Christianity and a Christian worldview might say this. Um, yeah, but that's Jesus. And what he did was he knew the scriptures. He was steeped in them. And what he did was he chose to live his life in such a way that matched those prophecies so that it would look like he was the Messiah. Now that may have some validity to it. But there are plenty of others who have raised up and said to be Christ, and they were exposed as false. All of their followers fell away. We don't celebrate them anymore. They were very short-lived and exposed in their lifetime, unlike Jesus Christ. Furthermore, I don't know how you're hanging on a cross dying and you somehow get the guards to do things with your garments that would fulfill prophecy, but there's some, there's some water that doesn't hold with that. But the most convincing by far is this. How many of you, by show of hands, got to choose where you were born? Got to choose your name? Got to choose your parents and the circumstances and the political scene around your birth? There's no hands up, right? Powerful. So let's take just a quick look at the, at the picture of Christ. The manner of Jesus' birth, Isaiah 7.14. By the way, I intentionally chose some prophecies that aren't as common. You don't hear those as much. You will hear a lot of prophecy read during the Christmas season. It's part of the Christmas story. But there's so many more that are laying there in your scriptures. This is why I mentioned at the start of the morning, reading through the entire Bible, if you've never done that, you ought to do it. You need to do it. You don't need to discipline yourself to do it in one calendar year. That's rather arbitrary. But read your book. Read the book God's inspired and put it in your hands. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. There's the manner and name of Jesus being predicted and lived out. Micah 5.2 talks about the location. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. That's the location of his birth. His vocation was predicted in Isaiah 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Quite a name. The idea that infant persecution 
was going to be going on is predicted in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew 2.14 gives commentary on this. And he rose and took the child and his mother, that's Joseph, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And then it says explicitly, Matthew gives this clue to us, lest we miss it. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This is the gospel writer interpreting for us prophecy, specifically predicting the circumstances around Jesus Christ's birth. I hope what's happening in your heart and mind right now is that you are you are seeing something lifted up that says, this is not the man-made story of a person. You cannot do this. Even the idea of a forerunner is predicted in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John 1, we just read this. It actually brings out uh, John the Baptist. And of course, there's miracle parts to them being infants in the womb that is a treasure that Scripture records that for us. John enters the scene in John 1.23. It says this, He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, him quoting the prophet Isaiah would have not been missed on the ears of those hearing, but just to make sure, he clarifies that for us. Jesus does something relatively similar when he stands up and he reads from the prophet and, and says that these, these, I am the one that these things are concerning and sits back down. <laughs> Incredible. Jesus, John the Baptist, other gospel writers saying, these are the prophecies being fulfilled in your midst. Now there's a lesson in how this adventure, this arriving unfolded. And as I said before, many people are, are underwhelmed when they pray for deliverance. They say, God, I hope in you. I trust in you. And then the way that he delivers leaves the person underwhelmed. Even though it's from God. Lacking in the way that Christ came to the world was speed and flash and crowds and famous people with green rooms, pyrotechnics, Red carpet premieres, media coverage, viral buzz on the internet. All of that was not there. Instead, what we see is this. Jesus came and it was a small event. Um, Jesus came in a, in a needy package. Some of you have babies in this room and you're like, Amen, brother, preach it. Needy. There's nurturing that's involved. It's quiet. It's somewhat off in the corner. It's almost like a whisper or a shadow. It just happens. God comes to the world. hope your heart wonders why. God, why did you do it that way? Why did you show up that way? Frankly, it harkens to some things I struggle with right now when I say, God, would you just accompany your message with a powerful punch, a sign that people would just see and couldn't deny. Let me throw out a couple of ideas of maybe why. One is one is maybe for us to celebrate the small things. 
and to look for God in the small, seemingly out-of-the-way things. I would venture to guess that many in this room, many in churches around the world, not even to mention those who aren't seeking Christ actively, still miss the work of God in their life. It's right there. It's right there in front of us, and we miss it. Why? Because it's a whisper. It's just gentle. It's small. In some ways, we're looking for something here, and God's been doing it right here in the corner, in the Bethlehem part of our schedule and our lives. Something that's called to mind by Christian and non-Christian alike is the humble nature in which Christ enters the scene. And for God, who created everything we see, is in control of everything we see, could have done any number of things to say, here's my son, what he does is really humiliating. It's really, really humble. Philippians 2 is a passage we read sometimes around communion. We're encouraged to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And it was just talking about a selfless, humble nature. And it says this mindset is yours in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to expound, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humble lifestyle is modeled by Christ from start to finish. There's probably other reasons, and I think as a community group, you guys can explore other reasons of why God chose to do it the way he did. We just take the facts as they are, and we we get to receive them. But I think one other that jumps out to me is this. Isn't it powerful that God is relational in how he came? I'm keenly aware of this because I have two one-year-olds in my house right now, and periodically, in fact, most mornings, um, I'm trying to give bottles to two babies at once. My wife most often takes the evening shift. My wife can somehow manage this with skill and grace, and I think she's reading a book while she's doing it. Not really. She's actually engaged with the kids. Um, but I'm all thumbs as I'm doing it, and honestly, there's bottles tipping and spilling. I find myself drinking one. It's a mess. It's just a giant mess. But, but one of the things that, that we're doing as we feed every single mealtime um, is just this close communication with the baby. And um, this morning I woke up and my, my son's eyes were locked on mine, giant brown eyes, as he's right here. And I've got a bottle in his mouth and I'm whispering words of love to him. I'm just communicating to him. And I'm just, it's just so powerful to think, wow, that's the way Christ came to engage with Mary, with a teenage girl. And there's been some amazing songs written over the years that just talk about, you know, holding holding this, this eternal being. And these fingers that created the universe are, are now clasping around mom's finger and needy from mom. It says this, that the answer to our dilemma the answer to our disaster and the catastrophes going on around us is not stuff. It's relational. It's him. The solution to our problems isn't gifts around the tree, 
Maybe if I give this to this person, it will smooth that over. Maybe if we just go on this experience and have this holiday together, that's what we really need. It's not. The answer really is Jesus. I made light of that maybe earlier, but but he comes and puts this giant stamp that says the answer to your catastrophe, what is going to fix what's wrong in your life, is a person. It's me. I'm giving myself to you. And that's a powerful picture for us to grab onto. I was in a toy store, uh, I think last year I saw this, and I walked in and I had to snap a picture of it because I thought, man, I wish more toy stores were like this. I go into toy stores with my kids at times and it's like, you know, fly swatting at the beach. I mean, you're just, you're just trying to keep hands away from all the things that they can touch. And what a fantastic sign. Go ahead, it's okay to play. And I think about the story of God. I think about the way that God's engaged us as people. He hasn't just saved us and set us aside and said, now don't screw anything up. Just sit over there. Isn't that amazing? Instead, He saves us and He engages us. And He hands this precious treasure of the Gospel into fumblers. And those who are bumbling around the world doing stuff And we see that in the disciples and we feel okay about some of the things that are going on in our lives when we read these accounts of Scripture and say, wow, God, you entrusted that to them. And then it says explicitly that that in essence, God's perfect treasure was put in these, these broken pots, right? To ensure that we don't elevate the pot and think that somehow it's that, that little piece of Tupperware, that common earthen clay jar is somehow the power behind this. No one will make that mistake. No one gives a rip about Tupperware, to be honest. Well, Mindy does. But, um, <laughs> but, the, but the point being this, that God continues to engage us. He continues to use us. He continues to grow us. He continues to give us mission in the world. Not just in Pakistan. Not just around the world. But today, in this season. And that's a powerful, powerful thought. We're to join in. Jesus commands us to put off the old self and to put on the new self. And what I want to do this morning as I close is offer you kind of a putting off example and offer you kind of a putting on as we, uh, as we worship this December. Now before I do anything, I actually uh, need to just make mention of this, that this requires a new heart. This requires what we just read in John chapter 1, that those who would believe in Him, He gives them the right to be called children of God. Otherwise, what I'm about to tell you can just turn into religious exercise and try and do better this Christmas season and apply these principles. So of a plan and passion, not of human parents, but of God, that's what's required. The idea of being born again is what Jesus commented on in John chapter 3. So here they are. The first one is this. To resist the empire. Now as I walk around and see, uh, and see different things, um, I didn't get a chance to, but right in my own neighborhood is a house that looks very similar to this. And what's fantastic is we, we were on a walk the other night, a few of us, and um, freezing cold outside. just felt like Christmas. It was fun. We were out there. And we come across this house. And what's cool is from my vantage point, I could see kind of three quarters of the way back, there's a manger scene. 
I mean, in the midst of all this scene of chaos and lights and PG&E bill is a manger scene. And so, and so I just said, I said, hey, um, you know, who can find Christmas in all of this? So we had this whole game and, you know, uh, some had to be lifted up to kind of, to kind of see it. But it was actually kind of a powerful metaphor for me as I just sat there and I thought, wow, you could really be distracted by a lot. But it's there. I mean, it's right there. It's not highlighted very well, even though it's lit up. But it's there, kind of in the midst of it all. God's people were called out. They were separated, which is the idea of holiness. Called out and separated. They were rescued from a mighty, evil empire called Egypt. God's people were called to resist, and it was God that did all the fighting. The remnant were on the margins of culture and influence during the first advent. When Christ first came, not only was the king and their leader in humble circumstances, but God's very own people were marginalized and on the fringes. They weren't the leaders of culture. They weren't setting the tone. They weren't out ahead and being cheered and applauded by people. They were powerless, much like their infant king. Jesus came on the scene offering up an alternative life that he then modeled and called followers to. It was an upside-down way of living. Those who were winning now were going to lose in the end. The apparent have-nots possessed the greatest of riches. Those who would cling to their life will find it gone like clasping wind, while those who joined Jesus in giving their very lives would gain eternal life. The question I have for you this morning is, what kingdom are you fueling? What kingdom are you resisting? And what king- kingdom are you fueling? Look at your time. Look at your devotion. Look at the money. Look at your resources. Think back to a five-year-old in a field trip. Don't think of the right answer. Don't think of what's supposed to be there. What's really pouring out of your heart unfiltered? I want to end each of these times with a prayer that I just wrote out for us. don't often write out prayers, but let me pray this. Jesus, your arrival as a person on this earth was a threat to the earthly kingdoms of the day. Those seemingly invincible powers are now shown for what they were, temporary. You are here now and are still a threat to the established norms. We commit our lives afresh to your kingdom and your agenda. All we do and are is accomplished by your power and for your glory. We give you this Christmas season. You are the beginning, the end, and the middle of our celebration. As we joyfully lift you up in word and deed, reclaim your rightful priority in our lives. Amen. Look up at the screen. The second one is this. If that's a putting off, a resisting of an empire that is closing in on you, the putting on is this, to give and receive presence as in yourself and your personhood. Don't wait until the end of your life or the end of someone else's life to realize the best gifts you'll ever give or receive are people. And I think because it's free, to meet with people and to look at people and be with people, it's often overlooked. 
Because it's so common, we cannot value it, even though it's right there in front of us. Because we have a kingdom around us, a culture around us, that is, that is constantly nudging us towards more, nudging us to what we don't have, training us towards discontentment and entitlement. We can miss what's right in front of us and all around us. I would challenge you this December to grow in really being with those that you love. To marry or bond together your heart and your mind and your body and your soul and your strength. Isn't that how God wants us to worship Him? So He wants us to compartmentalize and say, We've got, just worship us with your emotion. Just, just worship me with your mind. Just worship me on Sundays. Have your body present, but your mind elsewhere. No, He wants all of you, undivided, pure. So here's what I'd say. The way you can practice doing this for other people is to start or to rekindle doing it with God. That as you meet with God, some of you have a very set, specific, quiet time devoted to Him. It's called devotions because you've devoted to start your day with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you settle into your morning routine or whenever it might be and you just say, Jesus, today I walk with you. Today I affirm that you're my king. Today hold me in all my hurts, all my confusion, all my doubts and all my wonder that I have. Today I want to walk in your mercies that are new. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. As you do that and as you grow with what it means to really be present, not be doing that while you're making scrambled eggs, not be doing that while you've got the newspaper open. Why do I keep saying newspaper? That's like a different era. Whatever, whatever you get your news from. Kids are like, what is he talking about? That as you do that with Jesus Christ, that maybe a part of your prayer is to say, God, would you help me do this? Undivided, would you help me be with the people I'm really with today? Would you help me to see that you're sovereign and you orient even appointments and who I'm going to get at my different uh, vendors that I go to and the different people I interact with? Would you help me to really learn to be present with, with them today? God doesn't keep His distance from others, but He enters in. He's intimate. And isn't it powerful that meals and travel and parties and holidays and weddings, and even the mundane, collectively, that is the adventure Jesus lived with his disciples. What's powerful in that is the seemingly mundane walking from one place to another turns in to a miraculous gift of God. It can excite your heart such that you say to your friend, did our hearts not burn within us as we're getting the coolest Bible study on the planet? The risen Jesus Christ giving a Bible study while we're traveling. Traveling might seem like a chore, right? But what if right in the midst of the travel, God wants to be working in you and doing things in you? Jesus is Lord over everything and and all of it. So don't miss out simply because it seems regular. Let me close with this prayer. Lord, settle my heart and mind today. Let me really be here, body, mind, heart, and soul. I confess a distracted, flighty heart and mind, anxious 
for burdens that aren't mine, preoccupied with matters that are out of my control. Help me make room in my heart for You, Messiah. Rekindle undiluted, undivided worship. Amen. A final very practical way to make sure that worship dominates December for you is I want to make mention of our Christmas services. They're in your bulletin. They'll be on the website. But we are having one service that's being done two times, which is different than how we normally do it. So I just want to make sure you're aware of it. Christmas Eve will be here from 5 to 6, and we'll do that same service again on Christmas morning, Sunday, uh, from 9 o'clock until 10 o'clock. So they're an hour long. They're a little bit shorter than we normally go. Um, Be thinking of those in your life that need to be here worshiping with you and make sure for your own self that you make plans to be together with God's people as we worship.